Hello and welcome to the Economy, Land and Climate podcast. My name is Bertie Harrison-Brolinski. I'm an assistant editor here at ELSI. And today I'm talking to Dr. Howard Herzog, Senior Research Engineer at MIT's Energy Initiative, about carbon capture and storage technology, also known as CCS. CCS actually describes a group of technologies that can be used to either capture carbon dioxide emissions from smokestacks at power plants or industrial facilities, or even to create so-called negative emissions by removing CO2 directly from the atmosphere. Dr. Herzog is a pioneer of CCS research. He's worked on it since 1989, and he was a coordinating lead author on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's 2005 special report on CCS. You know, if the models say, I've got to hit this target, it's going to put in technologies, no matter how much they cost, to meet that target. I began by asking Dr. Herzog to tell us a little bit about the different types of technology involved in CCS and how they work. There's lots of ways to do it, and one reason is there's lots of different uh, sources of CO2. As I said, originally, we looked at coal-fired power plants, so you have uh, exhaust going up the uh, chimney, and that CO2 concentration there is, say, somewhere between 10 and 20 percent, or maybe 10 and 15 percent, I should say. You have industrial processes like cement, maybe having 20 percent uh, in the exhaust. You have some processes like ammonia and ethanol, which have pure, pretty pure CO2, so that's a pretty easy capture process. Uh, you have other things like natural gas um, turbines, and that's fairly dilute at, uh, say, 5%. And as I say, some people are looking out of the air, which is 0.04%, so very dilute, about 300 times less than a power plant. So you have different technologies for that. The most common one used right now is called uh, chemical scrubbing, where you have a chemical that reacts with the uh, flue gas and uh, reacts with the CO2 in the flue gas and pulls it out of the um, gas and into the uh, solution. You do these in big towers so where, you, uh, where you contact that flue gas with the solvent that contains the chemical. Uh, in general, it's an, the chemical is an amine. The way it works is uh, the amine's a base, CO2 is an um, acid, and, and they form a bond. And uh, you can regenerate the uh, solvent to reuse. Uh, in general, there's several ways to do it, but the most common way is called a temperature swing. You heat it up and drives off the CO2, and then uh, you can reuse the solvent. And you have fairly pure CO2 there that you can uh, do something with. Uh, what do you do with it? A lot of times you need to transport it, so you can transport it to in pipelines. It's, it's the most common way. Uh, in Europe, in the North Sea, they're looking at trying to do it with a network of ships. That's a little more expensive than uh, pipeline transport. And the most common thing to do with now is put into Geologic formations under the earth, these formations are uh, below 800 meters, um, say about uh, uh, half a mile down. And that way you keep the CO2 in a uh, liquid uh, form, so so it, it's uh, dense uh, when it goes in the ground. It's also below, say, uh, usable water aquifers, so you don't get that type of contamination. The types of formations are the same type of formations we take oil and gas out of. We can use depleted oil gas wells. But also there's a, a lot of things called deep saline formations. And these are in uh, rock that's similar to the oil and gas things, what we call sedimentary rock. Uh, they're porous, but instead of containing um, hydrocarbons, they just contain brines, which is basically salty water. And you can... Uh, put the CO2 in there. So that's 
sort of the broad concept of uh, how it works on all the components. Uh, basically, at least uh, some components, there are components for each of the, well, I should say there are technologies for each of these components that are commercial today. And we have uh, maybe a couple dozen demonstration plants or commercial plants um, around the world. Uh, there's other technologies being under development. Uh, people are trying to maybe um, use what they call cryogenic and freeze out the CO2. Sometimes they want to burn it in oxygen as opposed to air, and that eliminates the nitrogen in the combustion process, which is the big diluent uh, at the end of the process, which makes the capture hard, so it makes the process easier. You also can change the process to try to have the process itself put out higher higher uh, concentrations of CO2 to make it easier to capture. So all of those things are being looked at. Uh, a long list of uh, people looking at technologies in different stages of development. Uh, obviously, they all won't come to fruition, but uh, if, if a couple do, that sort of uh, could really move the technology uh, forward and, and cut the price down. You talked about injecting liquid CO2 into oil and gas reservoirs. At the moment, I think I'm right in saying that the vast majority of active CCS projects are being used for oil recovery. I wondered if maybe you could explain quickly kind of what that was. Um, And also in in your book, you talked about it as a stepping stone to developing CCS, even if it's not great in climate terms at the moment. So I was interested to hear whether you think kind of three, four years later, do you see that happening? Do you see us kind of stepping off that stone or is it a bit of a roadblock to doing the processes that we want to be doing. So first, let me explain what CO2 injection to oil fees are. That's uh, a lot of times called enhanced oil recovery or EOR for short. Basically, uh, when you uh, tap an oil field, you get some uh, oil out, but most of it stays in the ground and you have to use uh, uh, advanced recovery techniques. Sometimes uh, the next thing they may do is put a water flood in there, uh, keep the pressure up uh, to mobilize it. But a lot of times the oil stuck in the rock itself. And if you inject CO2 down, it what's called mobilizes. It actually uh, changes the, the, the chemistry a little. So this CO2 that was stuck between the, lock, the rock mobilizes, it lowers its viscosity, and uh, you can get it out. So, you know, I don't have the exact numbers uh, of what percent, but maybe as much as uh, 20% of the original oil in place can be, you know, uh, retrieved uh, using these techniques. So uh, the industry likes it. Um, They don't like paying for the CO2. So it's really developed in the United States where there were cheap supplies of CO2, basically, there are reservoirs of CO2, just like we have gas reservoirs in the United States. We have some reservoirs that contain gas, but that gas is mostly CO2. And that's how the industry developed in the U.S. and, and why the U.S. has by far the most uh, enhanced oil recovery operations. Uh, the reason I call it a stepping stone is for two reasons. One, why why are people using that uh, to put the CO2 away? Today, that's probably the cheapest way because you may actually get paid a little money uh, for your CO2 and help overall project uh, economics and where there's no, where there's not a lot of incentives um, in terms of climate for reducing CO2 emissions, this helps project economics. It's only a stepping stone because A, the amount of CO2 you can put it in oil wells is fairly limited. The uh, There's a lot more room in gas 
reservoirs. And then there's a lot, lot more room in uh, these deep saline formations. If you just kept doing it in these oil reservoirs, you're going to produce, car- you know, you're not, you know, as you put the CO2 in, you're producing more carbon. So your overall carbon um, reduction isn't as great as you just put it into uh, formations where you don't produce additional hydrocarbons. So eventually, if this is going to be used on a large scale, you have to move well beyond enhanced oil recovery. And just briefly, uh, the only thing you mentioned that I think people might not know what you meant was water flooding. What's water flooding? It's just injection of water into the oil fields. And a lot of times when they inject CO2, they'll do it along with water flooding. They'll call it uh, water alternating gas. They'll put some CO2 in and then they'll put some water in, more CO2. And this this helps move it along through the uh, reservoir in terms of the flow uh, because it's the... um, the CO2 is less dense than the water, so the water can push them along in slugs. And you mentioned how enhanced oil recovery is partly popular in America because there are CO2 reservoirs, so you don't need to capture that CO2 necessarily. And I think that leads into a question I was going to ask you to talk about in terms of enhanced oil recovery is not a new process, right? That predates CCS. And Am I right in saying that actually quite a lot of the parts of the CCS process are old technologies that are not as novel as people might expect? The core technologies, um, and of course, as you you use it, uh, things evolve. So it's a little different today than uh, when first invented. But uh, I believe enhanced oil recovery started, I think the first uh, fields of CO2 injection were back, I think, about 1970. So that's about 50 years ago. And uh, it, it was used with the one one thing in mind, let's get more oil out of the ground. And of course, we had the um, oil shocks of the 70s where we, were, we thought we were going to be running out of oil. We we're going to really need these um, techniques. So that's um, where that came from. Capture, the uh, process, the chemical scrubbing process um, I described it was originally patented in the 1930s. That was uh, used. One of the main uses was for natural gas uh, processing. Uh, a lot of natural gas came up with too much CO2 in it, so that had to be removed. And uh, they they did that so it could be pipeline quality. The amount of CO2 in a natural gas reservoir will vary uh, greatly from some with very little to others. Uh, as I say, there's almost pure CO2. So that was um, a, a, another area, and in fact, some of the first... Uh, CCS projects were taking that CO2, which was captured from natural gas and uh, putting it back down uh, into the earth. The first one that did that was uh, Sleitner in 1996, uh, started up in 1996, still running today uh, in the North Sea off of uh, Norway. That's there in terms of pipelines uh, with the advent of um, CO2 enhanced oil recovery. Uh, a pipeline network grew up, and I think today we have about 5,000 miles of CO2 pipeline uh, here in the U.S. So the cores of those technology were here, but uh, like the capture technology today, it was originally invented, used on natural gas. There was very limited oxygen in natural gas. The technique did not work well with streams of lots of oxygen, which was, came out of the power plant. So it's been adapted and today can handle flue gas streams out of uh, power plants, which contain oxygen, you know, some excess oxygen in there because they added uh, things like inhibitors um, to stop the oxygen from uh, degrading the uh, solutions. So as I say, uh, things are moving on. It become more energy efficient uh, in the process. And um, 
as I say, uh, technology doesn't stop. It, it will keep growing and, and changing. It changes the quickest when there's a market for it. Um, so R&D is important to uh, understand the basics, but what really generates, I think, innovation is the marketplace and the needs of the marketplace and how you adapt the technology to that. You mentioned Sleipner, and I wanted to bring that up because I, from what I've read, it seems like quite an unusual example in terms of A, just how long it's been running since 97, and B, in terms of how successful it's been. It hasn't had that many hiccups. I read a study from September last year that reviewed several hundred, pretty much all of the major CCS projects that have happened commercially and found that 78% of them, the large ones, had either been suspended or cancelled before they were meant to be. What has gone wrong with CCS today in terms of these projects not being as successful as they should have been? And what makes Sleipner different? There, there's lies, damn lies, and statistics, as uh, Lee Iacocca said. So, yeah, maybe 78% of that project list never made it, but a lot of those projects were never more than a uh, press release from a company saying we're going to do this project. These aren't projects that were started and stopped. Most of them never reached the financial decision, you know, a financial investment decision. There are a couple of projects that did get under construction and never completed, but most of the ones that got a, a financial decision were completed and, and, and were successful. That's the real reason here is economics. So uh, people have aspirations. They want to reduce the CO2 emissions. Let's, let's look at this project. And then they look at the real world and said, there's no economics. I can put it in the atmosphere for free. Why am I capturing this now? So, you know, they just couldn't monetize it. What made Sleipner different? There, there's been a lot of activity in Norway. And one is, is the government there was very supportive and they put a lot of money behind these projects to do it. Uh, it's a little complicated. Sometimes people talk about a carbon tax in the North Sea, and that was contributed to Sleipner. But my talks with uh, the Norwegians was the government wanted this done and therefore it was going to get done. Uh, I think the government at that time was a, the major stockholder in uh, stat oil. Their economics were a little different than, say, economics and in other places. So where we've seen projects succeed are where there's been government programs to help subsidize, or now they move to um, tax credits with what's called the 45Q tax credits. So that's what's going to drive it. But uh, we really, even today, do not have the type of markets needed for large-scale deployment of carbon capture and storage. So I'll turn your question around and say, it's pretty amazing 22% of those projects made it, uh, given these circumstances that uh, you know we're under in terms of policy. So I think if we have the policy, you'll see projects come online and uh, be successful. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because on one hand, you have the kind of IPCC integrated assessment models, including a lot of CCS, particularly around negative emissions, because they find them more economically feasible than nature-based solutions a lot of the time. So in theory, they should be economically better than other alternatives. And yet, we also have people saying CCS hasn't worked because of economics. So, I mean, I don't know if you feel like you've already answered that, but how do we kind of bridge that gap? I think, I think there's no argument that capturing CO2 out of a power plant exhaust at 
is going to be a lot cheaper than capturing out of the uh, atmosphere at 0.04%. While the uh, interest and things like direct air capture, uh, a number of reasons. One, uh, I work with modelers at MIT and, and I know a lot of the other modeling groups out there. You know, when you have to hit a 1.5 degree C target or 2 degree C target, you know, we're at the point now we're so far along, we're going to need negative emissions to get there in any practical sense. And so the models use them and it fills up. You know, if the models say I've got to hit this target, it's going to put in technologies no matter how much they cost to meet that target. That's, you know, part of what's happening. I also think there's a uh, naive view of how much direct air capture is going to cost. You read the literature, there's a lot of hope in the one to $300 range. I've done some analysis and my best guess is 600 to a thousand dollars per ton of CO2 by 2030. And I may be biased because, you know, there's a, there's a um, bias to go along with the crowd. So, you know, I'm way out there and. You know, I think my if I look at my six hundred to a thousand dollar range, I still may think that may be still optimistic. But uh, that's that's uh, where I'm at today. And I, you know, as I say, I've written about it on why this is so expensive because it takes a lot of energy uh, to take it out of the air, and you have to process a lot of air to do it because there's so little CO two in the air. If you want to get a ton of CO two. You've got a lot of air to process, and that takes big machines and big fans and um, lots of energy. And you can't get around that. Another thing um, I was interested to ask you about that I think people have a very vague understanding of, including myself, but not in detail, is about CCUS, which is a carbon capture, utilization and storage. So in, instead of maybe injecting underground, using that carbon dioxide for something else, as Interested to ask you what forms of CCUS you think are good in climate terms or um, which ones are less so and which ones maybe are more feasible and which ones are less so? Because um, I know there are a lot of options for what you can do with that carbon dioxide. Well, I mean, it's it's only natural that people says, well, why should I stick this CO2 way underground? Why can't I find a, a use for it? And there's a number of significant challenges in using CO2. The market for CO2 itself is fairly limited. We're maybe talking tens of millions of tons per year here in the U.S. compared to six billion tons of CO2 being produced, you know, out of our smokestacks and uh, other places. So that's a big disconnect there. And most of the uses, the CO2 end up in the atmosphere anyways. If you want to look at new uses like turning CO2 into fuels, the problem there is CO2 spent fuel. So I burn fuel to get CO2. To turn it back into fuel, I have to put all that energy back in. Not only do you have to put all that energy back in, I have to put maybe 50% more, uh, even 50% over that because I have losses in conversion. Unless you have really cheap carbon-free energy to do the conversion, it's going to make no sense whatsoever uh, to do that. But people today are talking about uh, all sorts of fuels you can make um, with um, direct air capture, get the CO2 reacted with green hydrogen and make fuels. Well, green hydrogen is probably the most expensive form of hydrogen we have today. CO2 from there is the most expensive form of CO2 we have today. And then you add more money to that by conversion process. People are competing about gas prices today. <laughs> You know, they haven't seen anything yet. You got to be a little realistic. 
I don't think we talked much at the beginning about uh, some of the other forms of storage, like mineralization or mineral carbonation is something people often talk about as well. And I know people are talking about like injecting biofuels and all sorts of other types of storage now too. Do you think, is geologic formation just the way to go? I think geologic formation is the way to go today. And I think if we can expand the types of formations, we'd be even better. There's there's quite a lot of space in there. Probably, uh, you know, space for a couple hundred years of the world CO2 emissions at this point. But they're not totally accessible from everybody. And, they, and that's one of the problems. I mean, they're, they're, fairly, they're, they're spread around a lot, but not everywhere. And so uh, that, that becomes an issue. Mineralization has been looked at. It's a really nice way to do it. If, if the CO2 turns into a rock, basically, it's, it's uh, about one of the stablest forms you, you can uh, do it. But and nature does this, but nature takes hundreds of thousands of years to turn CO2 into rock. So we need to speed it up. And in trying to speed it up, it costs money. Uh, you have a, a lot of rock to mine. And therefore, it's uh, very hard. The Department of Energy had a program back in the 1990s on this, and they concluded that what they call ex situ, which is doing it out of the mine and everything, is going to be very difficult. But they saw ways that maybe in situ you could do it. One thing, there's a project in Iceland called Carbfix, where they're injecting CO2 into uh, volcanic rocks, and it's reacting within two years. And uh, so that concept looks promising how widespread we can make that. Uh, we don't know. And how the cost be versus other things is, is still not clear. Some researchers and campaigners have always warned that CCS could disincentivize companies from reducing emissions if they have the option of capturing them or offsetting them using technology. What would you say to that kind of concern? And what policy type solutions could be put in place to prevent that happening. So I like to make a distinction between carbon capture, what we call CCS, carbon capture and storage. And uh, when on the offsets, a lot of people call CDR, carbon dioxide removal. And I see carbon capture and storage the same way I see energy efficiency, I see renewables, I see nuclear. It reduces the amount of CO2 we put into the atmosphere. And if I can do it of all of those ways, the cheapest way to do it is what we should do it. It's a challenge to do it. We want to do it in the most cost-effective way. And the more options we have, the better. And there's plenty of room for all the other options. Uh, CCS, you know, is, there's no silver bullet. None's going to do- dominate the scene. So, I, 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 you know, I think that argument for CCS is totally off base. Carbon dioxide removal fundamentally that's not an issue but the way it starts getting applied is that that you're right people don't will not look at their own operations and cut there we say we're going to offset everything and everybody wants to offset and there's not enough offsets to go around and i think it also gives um this uh, unrealistic exuberance toward uh how cheap this may become. Uh, I think in reality, they're not there. But carbon dioxide removal has a really important position. So even if it costs, say, $500 per ton of CO2, maybe 10 or 20% of our CO2 sources are just not CO2 sources, but greenhouse gas sources may cost a lot more than that. So if those are going to cost more, once again, that's the, the, the most cost effective. If, you know, to decarbonize our electricity system, we probably get 95% of the way there or maybe 98% of the way there without offsets. 
Let's do that. If the last 2% need offs, that's okay. You know, and we look at that in other industries. So I think there, there's a way to look at it. It's a big world out there. People will spin things their ways. Uh, a lot of money coming from the tech companies these days. The tech companies say, I want to be carbon neutral, not just today or in the future, but since my past, this is one way I can uh, uh, say that. And, you know, so if they spend, say, $1,000 a ton on capturing CO2 from um, the atmosphere, you know, and get by those negative emissions. If they took that thousand dollars a ton and started a program for insulating houses for low income people, they can do a a lot more CO two for the same price, and b do a real social good. But of course, this doesn't sound so sexy on their website that I'm carbon neutral since uh, birth. So you know, it's their money. You can't control it. But that's why you see the greenwashing. Um, type of things come out. And one another reason of the greenwashing is if you don't do the carbon accounting right, you can really take a lot credit for a lot more carbon offsets than you've really done because you got to do a real cradle to grave on that. So there is danger. Carbon dioxide removal is a good idea. It's how people apply it. So any good idea can be misapplied. And that's what we got to be vigilant about. My thanks to Howard Herzog for coming on the show. If you'd like to learn more about CCS, We've recently published my series of long reads on the topic that go into everything from what CCS is and how it works, to what facilities are planned, what are already operational, CCS's place in the modeling, and why we've come to rely on it so much, to the issues that we're going to have rolling it out at scale. I'll link it below, or you can find the articles and many others at elc-insight.org. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to listen to future ones, please follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and we'll be back soon with more interesting interviews with climate experts. Thanks for listening.